0: Check out org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Hey, folks. I am super excited to tell you a bit about today's new sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, MMC hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Ribot, Wayne Krantz, OTiel Burbridge, the Mel Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, You can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available. Spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com slash moods to learn more. Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media and made possible thanks to our Patreon community. To support the podcast directly, go to patreon.com slash Alex Skolnick. From Brooklyn, New York, this is Moods and Modes. I'm your host, Alex Skolnick. I'm probably best known as a professional guitarist. I'm also a writer, a photographer, and someone who occasionally gets told to keep his opinions to himself on Twitter. This podcast will involve music and guitar, but it may take us to some unexpected places as well. So, thank you for joining me, and let's do this. Welcome, podcast people, ladies, gentlemen, however one chooses to identify. This is episode 20 of Moods and Modes, and I am your host, Alex Golnick, and we're going to do something different today. Now, the awesome music that was just playing is by the late, great Charles Mingus, the legendary jazz bassist and composer who had a wide influence, including a recent guest of Moods & Modes, Percy Jones, a few episodes back, and we discussed Mingus. And that album is considered one of his signature albums. It's called A-Oom. The song came out in 1959. It's called Boogie Stop Shuffle. Now, the premise of today's episode is borrowed music, quote unquote. And I've wanted to talk about this for a while. Now, the subject of creative influences and inspirations, as well as whether an artist is borrowing, quote unquote, or stealing, (laughs) quote unquote, has come up quite a bit in conversation with guests who have appeared on the show. I've also shared numerous observations I've had noticing connections between different pieces of music, some of which have been totally random while I'm taping the show and talking to all of you. Now, as far as similarities between compositions, some are very well-known and commonly discussed on the street. Some have had legal ramifications. We'll uh, discuss a few of those at different points during the show. And some I've never heard anybody else discuss before. Which brings us back to Charles Mingus. I believe that that song we heard in the clip, Charles Mingus's Boogie Stop Shuffle, was the source for a song that came out a few years later that everybody knows.
0: Spider-Man. Spider-Man does whatever a spider can, spins a web any size, catches seeds just like guys
1: Look out, here comes a Spider-Man. Hmm, notice the similarity? Charles Mingus's Aung album with that opening track, Boogie Stop Shuffle, came out in 1959. The theme for the Spider-Man cartoon series, which would go on to be used in films for the franchise, came out in 1967. Coincidence? I think not. Now, there is plenty of constructive debate to be had about the ethics of so closely borrowing a piece of music. On the one hand, how many of us grew up watching that Spider-Man cartoon? Along with the Batman theme, we loved that piece of music. On the other hand, when you think about the fact that this was a hit television show with a high level of residuals, those are earnings coming from television broadcasts, none of which went to Charles Mingus, who a year earlier had been forcibly evicted from his apartment while cameras were rolling. This is captured in the 1968 documentary Mingus. It's kind of infuriating. I wouldn't wish for the Spider-Man theme to not exist. It brought joy to me and so many other kids for generations. But by all means, pay the guy. Now Spider-Man wasn't the only TV theme to borrow heavily from a noteworthy jazz composition. Here's another one, which like Spider-Man remained popular long after it went off the air. Many of you are probably familiar with it through reruns and syndication. The Odd Couple. Now so that show came out in 1970, and the theme borrows quite a bit from this song that came out in 1957. All right, at least in this case, they changed a few things. The opening melody, for example. Instead of, they went, all right, it's not a huge difference, but at least it's not direct like the Spider-Man theme, which you could sing over the Mingus composition directly. I'll spare you the demonstration but I recently heard an interview with a well-known artist who was talking about borrowing musical ideas. Now, he or she, I forget who this was, but they were speaking about borrowing from Led Zeppelin and trying not to be too obvious. They referred to one of their own compositions and admitted that it had a similarity to one of Led Zeppelin's deeper cuts. But, this person said, and I quote, at least it's not Stairway to Heaven. Now, obviously, this statement references the fact that Stairway to Heaven is Led Zeppelin's most recognizable composition. If you compose your own song, release it, and it sounds anything like Stairway to Heaven, you will be accused of ripping off Led Zeppelin. Now, the irony here, and I'm sure some of you see where I'm going with this, is that Stairway to Heaven itself was accused of being too heavily borrowed from another song. So the first thing you heard was the first few bars of Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin. The next thing you heard was the first few bars of a song called Taurus by a band Spirit from 1968, a band that had toured with Led Zeppelin and resulted in the legal action that took place a few years ago. Here are both pieces together.
0: There's a part of me I wouldn't argue this on social media or something or in a court of law, but part of me that says like, if you steal someone's idea
1: and your shit is way cooler, go have it, you know? Yeah.
0: Like <laughs> <laughs> it's yours, you know? Like that song that they shafted from Spirit right. is not as cool as Their Way to Heaven. Like That's objectively, right. it's right. not
1: as cool. I agree with that a hundred percent. That's Michael League, by the way snarky puppy founder and multi-instrumentalist vocalist producer from his appearance on this show a couple episodes back. Somewhere along the way, I read a similar argument that used what I thought was an effective analogy. Now, I don't remember who said this, but it was something along the lines of Led Zeppelin found a stone that had been used to build a primitive hut or shelter. They took that same stone and built a cathedral. I would also add that that same stone is a common musical device found in lots of songs. They are both what we call line cliches. A line cliche is when you have a chromatic line that leads between the chords. That is Rick Beato from his wildly popular YouTube channel, which has a series of incredibly informative videos, many of which share a spirit with what we do on this podcast. Maybe I shouldn't use the word spirit, but here he makes a very good argument poking holes in the case brought against Led Zeppelin by representatives of the group Spirit.
0: This ruling reopens a battle over whether Led Zeppelin borrowed from the 1968 song Taurus when they composed Stairway to Heaven for their 1971 release, Led Zeppelin 4. The chromatic line is this. Right? You could say, oh, these riffs are similar, but they're actually not similar at all. Because if you were to say that, you'd have to say that, "Mm, how about My Funny Valentine is similar too. Let's see here. My Funny Valentine. Sweet comic Valentine. Uh, Let's see.
1: So Rick goes on to explain that this same harmonic device, a descending chromatic line, which he refers to as a line cliché, is used in many other songs, including ones that predate rock and roll, such as My Funny Valentine. And when you take these melodies and you try them in the same key on top of a part that is similar to Stairway to Heaven, you really hear the similarity. Now, there are too many to name. Rick cites a bunch. I'm going to add one to the mix that he didn't play. What are you doing for the rest of your life? North and south and east and west of your life. Something like that. Now, it can be harder to determine this similarity if you're hearing a song in which the instrumentation is different, the key is changed, the groove is different, or any number of factors. For example, here is a song written by Leon Russell. It was covered by the Carpenters, Helen Reddy, and others. But my favorite version is by one of my all-time favorite musicians, mr george benson
0: are we really happy here with this lonely game we're playing
1: all right now let's hear that same vocal melody and lyrics on top of the stairway to heaven guitar part please keep in mind that while i am known to transcribe a george benson solo or two i do not have that voice And placing it in this key forces me to go to a much lower register. You've been warned. Are we really happy here with these lonely games we play? The point being that by changing the context and key you can hear that the exact same harmonic progression exists in this song as well. That song is called This Masquerade. And I wanna add one more point that I haven't heard brought up yet. And that is the fact that while all of the examples cited so far are based on minor chords like Stairway to Heaven, there are plenty of examples of this exact same harmonic device taking place over a major chord and songs that have a similarity. For example, then I feel a uh, town's with The gold. However, that goes. So, what about this? Lay, lay, do, lay. lay across my brass. Do you think Bob Dylan would go after those guys, Stone Temple pilots, and say, Hey, you, that's my tune. I'm going to sue. All of which is to say a lawsuit over the instrumental part of a song is, for the most part, pretty fucking ridiculous. Excuse my language. It would open the doors to a veritable ocean of litigation. And it's hard not to think that the Led Zeppelin lawsuit was the result of overly aggressive attorneys seeking notoriety, riches, or both. After all, the songwriter represented in the lawsuit, Randy Wolf, better known as Randy California, is no longer with us. And after a jury ruled in Led Zeppelin's favor in 2016, these guys wouldn't stop. They appealed the case. The verdict was tossed out. Then it went to a higher court who upheld the original verdict. These guys still wouldn't stop. They took it all the way to the United States Supreme Court. Thankfully, the court, from Sonia Sotomayor on the left, to Clarence Thomas on the right, to everyone in between, all agreed. We declined to hear the case. The verdict stands. Case closed. I love John Mayer, and I'm not faulting him, but it sounds a little borrowed from People Get Ready, written by Curtis Mayfield in the 60s before Curtis Mayfield had a recording career, recorded by The Impressions and covered by many, including Rod Stewart and Jeff Beck, the version you heard just before. And that was following Don't Speak by No Doubt, one of the biggest hits of the 90s which is very, very similar to Irene Cara's Fame, which came out over a decade before. Now, I'm actually surprised I've never heard anybody make that comparison. After all, Fame was the theme for a hit Hollywood film that was later developed into a TV series. So it's not like some obscure deep cut that few people had heard. Now, the first four chords are exactly the same. F minor, B flat minor, E flat major and C major. So on top of having the same progression, they're also in the same key. Not only that, both of these songs have that progression as the chorus, with the song's title as the lyric that kicks it off. And as if that's not enough, both of these choruses have the exact same interval sung over the first chord and the third chord. Here's what I mean by that. Let's take the melody for Fame. It starts with this note and it's part of the chord. It pretty much stays on that note. But now at this point, it moves down what we call a half step. Now that's very similar to what happens in Don't Speak. But there are a couple key differences. One is the fact that it begins with two words. That allows the opportunity to disguise it a little bit. So instead of starting with this note, Gwen Stefani sings the root of the chord, which is this. And it becomes... From there, she develops the melody a little bit. So in other words, each chorus starts on F minor and emphasizes this note. Faith, don't speak. The second chord is the same, but the melody is slightly different. I'm gonna live, I know just what you're And then the third chord. Thinking forever. That's exactly the same. So how come more people haven't noticed the similarity between the choruses of these two songs? There are a number of reasons. The first one I would point to is the instrumentation. If you listen to the chorus of Don't Speak by No Doubt, there's an electric guitar that comes in and it's slightly overdriven and it's used as a tool to power the chorus. Now, there's also a very dominant acoustic guitar track. Meanwhile, Fame doesn't have either of those. There's no acoustic guitar. There's no heavily overdriven electric guitar. There is electric guitar, but you really have to listen for it. It's in the background. It's played with very clean tone, and it's underneath the dominant instrument, which is synthesizer or electronic keyboard. Yet beyond the instrumentation, I would say that there is an even bigger reason for most people not noticing the similarity between these two songs. It has to do with rhythm, and I want to explain that in two parts, timing and energy. First, timing. That is my metronome, and it was counting 130 beats per minute. That was the tempo of the theme from Fame. Now, we could cut that tempo in half, and we would have 65, which would be this. Now, sometimes you'll hear songs with both types of parts. When that happens, you call the slower part halftime or a halftime feel. So, "Don't Speak" is almost halftime of fame. It's a little bit faster. It's approximately seventy-six beats per minute, which would be this. Dun 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 da 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 da. da. So, the timing, tempo, and overall feel are big factors in disguising the similarities between the songs. And that's on top of the instrumentation. But we didn't even talk about the energy yet. So, think about the energy. So, fame starts out with this galloping, high energy groove. It's like. And there's a melody on electric guitar right there, actually. <laughs> It's just driving. And the chorus is really driving too, right?
0: Bang. Da-na-na-na-na-na-na.
1: Ah. Okay, right? So different. So the no doubt song is really night and day. It's a ballad. It starts out with no drums and just this intimate keyboard part and a beautiful vocal melody that really draws you in. <coughs> So each of these songs takes you on a very different musical journey en route to its respective chorus. So different, in fact, that only by placing the choruses side by side does it become apparent that there is a similarity. Let's get back to John Mayer. Mr. Mayer, you stand hereby accused of doing what so many other artists have done throughout the history of rock and pop. And doing it rather well, I may add. And that is taking the chord progression for an existing song and altering it by adding one or two chords. In this case the song that is borrowed quote unquote is in the exact same key as the original song much like the case of Irene Cara's tune and that of Gwen Stefani's band no doubt this makes it easier to hear it Me and all my friends were so misunderstood they say we stand for nothing there's no way we ever could Now let's compare that to people get ready there's a train a-comin', don't need no baggage, just get on board. They're almost the same. The difference is John Mayer throws in this extra chord, which is an A chord. So the original progression is D, B minor, G, D. People Get Ready just repeats that progression. John Mayer throws in this A the second time around. But otherwise, they're the same. And I don't think John Mayer is trying to hide this. After all, if you listen to the original People Get Ready by The Impressions, you'll hear that it kicks off with an instrumental melody that has a bell-like sound. People get ready as a
0: train of
1: Now, I'm not 100% sure what instrument that is, but I think it may be a Celesta, which you play like a piano, but it gets sound in a manner more like a vibraphone or xylophone. And John Mayer's song has these instrumental melodies throughout that, while not played on the same instrument, I don't believe, seem like they are paying tribute to that part. Now, John Mayer is far from the only musician to take a chord progression from an existing song and alter it by adding one or two chords. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I present to you Exhibit A, Always Somewhere by the Scorpions from 1979. And brings me to you again.
0: Always somewhere.
1: An Exhibit B recorded six years earlier in 1973, Leonard Skinner. These two songs are so much alike. Uh, The borrowing on the part of the Scorpions, who I love, by the way, uh, my German heroes, it's pretty shameless. But also you have to remember that they had not broken in the United States at that point. It would be about five years until the band was headlining arenas in America. So I think the idea of taking a cut from a Southern rock band, you can't get more American than Leonard skinner And your audience is primarily the European market. You don't know that you're going to just blow up in America one day. And it's not like Europeans hadn't heard of Leonard Skinner, but it's nothing like here, where they're played on the radio constantly in the United States, even today. So maybe under those circumstances, the idea that it wouldn't be so obvious uh, wasn't so far-fetched. Of course, when you put them together, it becomes pretty clear. So the Scorpion's tune is recorded in standard tuning, The Skinner tune is recorded down a half step, so that's A-flat, and they are tuned to that, so it sounds more like this, right? But if you move it up a half step, then it's more like the Scorpion's. And back to what I was saying about adding a chord or two, the same way John Mayer did with People Get Ready. The Scorpions did that by putting in an F chord and an E chord in the middle of that part. So it becomes... Now, I do think you have to give them credit for the vocal melody. That's also the case with John Mayer. It becomes something totally different. So in the case of the Scorpions, it becomes this... So it really takes advantage of those chords, the ones that are tacked on. It also has a very different character from the Leonard Skinner one, which is more like... uh, It's got that southern thing. And that's one of the things I love about the Scorpions. Klaus Mayne always has vocal melodies that stand out and are very distinct apart from the rest of the song. But what if you have a case of borrowed music in which a part sounds very similar and it's the vocal melody itself? Well, that gets us into territory which some might refer to as a slippery slope. Let's get into that in the back half of this episode. What is a city without
0: its music?
1: We are at about the midway point right now, which is when we normally do our housekeeping and other business. So there isn't a whole lot to report. It's such a strange time, such a difficult week in the world. One almost feels guilty partaking in something so enjoyable as a music-focused podcast, but um, you know, music's healing and no need to feel guilty about that. So there was an Alex Golnick Trio show coming up late September. The Iridium is now pushing back all of its shows because of COVID, so we'll let you know as soon as we get a new date. As of right now, the weekend shows in upstate New York with Pact, a project with Percy Jones, are going forward. Epic Fest, that's on the 11th in Liverpool, New York, and then Hudson Valley at the Strand Theater September 12th. Also, as of now, Testament September 9th, the Blue Ridge Rock Fest in Virginia with more bands than I could name. Finally, a shout-out and tribute to giants we just lost. They don't get much bigger than this. Dusty Hill of ZZ Top and Charlie Watts of the Rolling Stones. Rest in peace, gentlemen. Now back to Borrowed Music. So far in this episode, all the examples we've looked at, even the high-profile Led Zeppelin example, have consisted of parts that are just instrumental. The one exception being No Doubt's hit from the 90s, which has a chorus that's kind of similar to Fame, which I should mention was written by Michael Gore and Dean Pitchford, uh, released in 1980. And at least in that case, you could say that the vocal melody sung by Gwen Stefani in the chorus is not exactly like the one sung by Irene Cara in Fame. It's changed around a bit, as we discussed earlier. But I want to play you a couple examples right now in which the vocal melodies are so close to their original sources that in some cases, lawyers were heard from. Well, you can't deny the similarity there. Poor George. May he rest in peace. Obviously, that's George Harrison, the song My Sweet Lord from All Things Must Pass, an album that turned 50 years old this year and is being celebrated in a number of ways, including reissues. And that song was recorded with a whole section of acoustic guitar players, including our friend Peter Frampton, and that was discussed in his episode of Moods and Motes. And that was followed by He's So Fine by the Chiffons, a classic girl group that had a huge hit with that song in the early 60s. And as I'm sure many of you know, the similarity between these two songs sparked an epic legal battle. It's one of the most notorious examples of copyright infringement and accusations of musical plagiarism in the history of both popular music and the court system. The case dragged on for decades, and there were some really unfortunate components. First of all, this was not the songwriter suing George Harrison. The songwriter's name was Ronnie Mack. He tragically died very young, in his 20s. Now, I'm not sure if he sold the rights to his song or his family did after he passed away, but somehow the rights to that song had fallen into the hands of a publishing corporation, Bright Tunes Music. And at some point, the attorney, Alan Klein, had gotten involved with the case, and he had had an acrimonious split with George Harrison and the rest of the Beatles, and was attempting to buy Bright Tunes music. Clearly, this was an act of retribution and a conflict of interest. Eventually, a court agreed with that assessment and Klein was removed. Still, the court case lasted for decades in different forms and cost George Harrison quite a bit of stress, time, and money. So let's talk about the musical components. I believe George Harrison got in trouble for a number of reasons. It's not just that the melody is similar, but it's the fact that you have a lead vocal trading off with a harmonized vocal in a very similar way. Then there's a change, it goes to the next part, and it's almost the same thing. Lead vocal, harmony, harmony, lead vocal, harmony, harmony. So the next chord and the melody on top of it are both identical to the other song. Oops. So what happened here? Did George Harrison legitimately plagiarize he's so fine, as stated in numerous complaints against him in a court of law? I say, hell no. Why would he do that? This is one of our greatest songwriters. He may not have written as many Beatles songs as Lennon and McCartney. I'm sure he would have written more had they let him. But his songs stand up to Lennon and McCartney. In fact, there are very knowledgeable people in the music world who prefer his songs. Whatever the case, there's no denying that this is somebody who has written some of the most iconic songs and has never been accused of ripping anybody else off. I think you have to look at it like a sexual harassment allegation. And I know that's a weird comparison, but bear with me one moment. If this were an accusation of sexual harassment and nobody else came forward and there was no evidence of a pattern of behavior, does it prove innocence? No, but it makes innocence far more likely. On the other hand, if you take an example like a certain former governor from a state from which I am speaking to you right now, and that first accusation is followed by another and another and another, and they're all investigated and found to be credible. And there's even an attractive law enforcement officer who comes forward and says, yes, me too. Well, as they say in said state, forget about it. So why did George Harrison's tune end up sounding so much like he's so fine? I believe he heard the song when he was younger. He admitted as much. And it just came out. He wasn't thinking about it. And sometimes you write a song and you're not aware that it sounds a lot like another song. So why the lawsuit? Well, As mentioned earlier, the plaintiffs in this case were music business people, publishing administrators, attorneys, and others with no connection to the song. And much like the case involving Led Zeppelin, they're doing this on behalf of a composer who is no longer around. Had Ronnie Mack still been alive, I am sure he and George Harrison would have worked out some kind of credit-sharing arrangement, as often happens.
0: Oh, won't you stay?
1: And there we have an example of a credit sharing arrangement. The now late great Tom Petty, who incidentally was George Harrison's bandmate in The Traveling Wilburys, was added as a writer to the song that preceded it, Stay With Me, by Sam Smith. In a way, it was very similar to the situation with George Harrison, where he said, I didn't do it intentionally, but now that you mention it, I notice a similarity. So yes, attorneys were involved, but there was no court case. There was no lawsuit. It was amicable. Petty was simply added as a writer, and it all worked out well. That's how it should happen. Now, here's a song where I noticed a serious similarity in the vocal melody, but to my knowledge, there's been no discussion about this and no legal wranglings. And I hope I'm not getting anybody in trouble, but take a listen to this. I, ain't gonna I only want to have a good time. So the next part, da-na, Keep that in mind and listen to this. I'm singing the B section from the first song over the B section from the second song. The second song is from the 1970s by Aerosmith. It's called Uncle Salty. The first song is from the 2000s, and it's called Man, I Feel Like a Woman by Shania Twain. Now, that was produced by Shania's now ex-husband, the preeminent hard rock producer Mutt Lang, famous for ACDC and Def Leppard. There's no way he wasn't aware of the album Aerosmith Rocks, but I'd imagine he's acquainted with Steven Tyler and company, so maybe he did them a favor in some way. Who knows? Now, I want to move on to a segment on borrowed riffs, but first I have one more example of a vocal melody sounding so much like another song that an additional writer was added to the credit. Now, news stories about this were breaking in the music world while I was taping this episode. That's why I included it. It's not my normal genre of music. This is more what I would refer to as angry teenage girl music. <laughs> Okay, so the first song is from 2007. It's a rock band fronted by a female vocalist, much like No Doubt. The vocalist's name is Haley Williams. And the second song is by Olivia Rodrigo. She is the current it girl of the pop world, occupying that space that Taylor Swift, Katy Perry, Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, and so many others have occupied at different times. She is it right now. And the verses of both those songs are similar as well. I'm not going to play them, but they both have phrases that end da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, da and they're kind of talk sung. Anyway, I'm not sure who all the writers are. I'm not sure how long the drama went on for, but I do know that the case was just resolved and the writers of the first song, Misery Index, have been given credit for the second song. And to them, I quote the title of the second song, Good For You. Okay, do not try to tell me that this section from one of Keith Jarrett's live improvisations did not inspire that Yes tune. Keith Jarrett was a superstar in the 70s, and I'm sure the keyboard players especially all listened to him. That's from a session called Sun Bear Sessions, recorded live in Kyoto, Japan. And that Yes song was recorded a number of years later, in 1980. The song changes with the second version of Yes, Yes 2.0. Right before that was Leonard Skinnerd, yet again inspiring another band, this time Van Halen, whose tune And The Cradle Will Rock, kicks off with a riff that certainly borrows from Skinnerd's tune Mr. Saturday Night Special. And right before that was Neil Young and Crazy Horse from 1971, a song called Cinnamon Girl, that uh, definitely inspired the riff for Hotter Than Hell by KISS, which came out a few years later. And while we're on the subject of borrowed riffs, I'm going to play you one of my favorite acoustic riffs, courtesy of Pink Floyd. Okay, that last part, for many people, brings to mind this. The last one is obviously Fade to Black by Metallica, which came out in 1984 on the album Ride the Lightning. And The Wall by Pink Floyd had come out in 1980. Yet even the mighty Pink Floyd was not beyond a little borrowing, even on the album The Wall. Okay, so that's the second solo section of Comfortably Numb, sort of the finale of the tune. Now take a listen to this from Peter Gabriel's first album that came out a few years earlier. Okay, it's not exactly the same, but the first part of the progression is the same. The playing of a moody guitar solo on top of it, the organ in the background. The idea was to take that or something like it, slow it down a bit and attach it to Comfortably Numb, which up to that point didn't have that section yet. It needed a really dark section. And that was where they borrowed it from. I heard this from Bob Ezrin when he was interviewed on the Bob Lessitz podcast. Bob Ezrin produced both of those records, so he would know. And before we start wrapping up, I want to play a couple more examples that I discovered just through my own listening. I believe these are examples of borrowed music, folks borrowing from the great French composer Monsieur Claude Debussy. First, Joni Mitchell. Next, Rogers and Hammerstein. The hills are alive with the
0: sound of music.
1: Okay, so I don't know for a fact that these ideas were borrowed from Debussy, whether subconsciously or deliberately, but it seems plausible. And either way, there's been more than enough evidence throughout this program for you to realize that borrowing is something everybody does. It's okay. You just have to be creative and tactful about it. Otherwise, be prepared to share the credit. Here's a final thought from my conversation with Michael League. Everything you've done, you've heard that before. Anything that you do that you think you haven't... Right, it comes from somewhere. Yeah, and if you think
0: you found something that's never been done before, it's because you're ignorant to the fact that someone else has done it. Yeah. You know, I
1: I mean, really. So it's like once we start getting into those details and editing, and then I think you start to see the flower of individuality. And we're back to Led Zeppelin. Keep in mind those notes. da 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 And that's Genesis 2.0 with Phil Collins on vocals. Yet long before either Fool in the Rain or Misunderstanding, there was this by Sly and the Family Stone. And that's it for episode 20. I hope you've enjoyed this special episode on borrowed music. I have a feeling it's a subject we will come back to There are plenty more examples, more than we had time to get to in this episode, and I'm sure there will be plenty more cases in the news worth discussing. One final takeaway, I could not agree more with the Led Zeppelin verdict, and as we've heard, there are ideas that aren't even common musical devices that are very similar. You can't regulate that. But if we're talking vocals and lyrics, and there's hooks that sound too similar with the vocals, well, songwriters can share credit. No harm, no foul. Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media, hosted and produced by Alex Skolnick, yours truly. Osiris production by Kirsten Cluthy and Brad Stratton. For this episode, final mixes by Tom Sullivan, production assistance by Matt Bavuso, opening and closing music by yours truly, and the music you're hearing now includes Matt Zabrowski on the drums and Nathan Pack on the bass. Artwork by Mark Dowd. As always, thank you for listening. Special thanks to those who have given us ratings and reviews. And extra special thanks to members of our Patreon community. You can support us directly by going to patreon.com slash Alex So once again, I'm really excited for what's coming up. I can't say what it is yet, but you're not going to want to miss an episode. So stay tuned. Thank you once again for all your support. And be careful out there. Take care. Be safe. And I'll see you on the next episode. Change. It's not the same. Ours goes ding, 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 ding. There's goes. Ours goes. Little bitty change. It's not the same. Not the same. Not the same. It's not the
0: same. Hey, listeners.